Welcome to the Dr. April Jasper Show, relevant conversations for business owners of today. Welcome everyone. I am so excited to be here with Dr. Maria Liu. I am actually in her turf or on her turf. So we are in the place where she founded and began this amazing myopia clinic and it is a myopia control clinic. David and I just had the the pleasure of visiting and touring and seeing what a difference she's making in the lives of not just her patients, but all of us who get to benefit from her research. But let me tell you a little bit about Maria, and then I want her to talk to us a little bit about some of the things that I know you have questions about. So what you may not know about Dr. Liu is that she practiced as an ophthalmologist in China. She moved to the U.S. in 2000. Mm -hmm. Tell me if I get any of this wrong, Maria. She obtained her MBA, her optometry degree, completed her MPH with emphasis in biostatistics and clinical study design, as well as her PhD in physiological optics. I can't even say it. Maria, did I leave anything out? That's incredible. No, no. Yeah, actually, um, after I finished my PhD, my husband was joking. You know, the law school is right next to you. <laughs> you might as well go. Yeah. Have so, you thought about it? No. <laughs> You're done. I'm done. Well, education wise, I can tell you what you have done here is incredible. But first, thank you for letting us tour, letting us be here and and you being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. It's my great pleasure. So to have you here. I what I told David as we were driving here is I just want to know I mean, when you look at all the things you've done, all your accomplishments, something is pushing you to do all these things. And I can't help but wonder what is that passion? What is fueling this? this need to be able to get out there and get into this world of myopia and what an amazing job you've done, all the papers you've you've written and the clinical research you're still doing. But what was the background of this, the impetus, the the really the behind the scenes story? Absolutely. So um, people have been saying myopia is a genetic problem. It runs in the family. There's nothing you can do about it. It's all pre-programmed. I did not believe that even from the beginning. Um, I grew up in a family where both my parents are hyperopic. My sister's hyperopic. I'm the only myopic child um, in my family. And I started doing a lot of reading very early on. And I um, at that time, I knew it's how I got myopia. And so um, since then, and since my medical training, and especially since I started my residency, um, I started feeding a lot of patients in Worth OK, followed them for many years. And after they're washed out from Worth OK and getting ready for refractive surgery, it's very surprising to me that uh, their level of myopia did not progress nearly as much as compared to those patients I fitted with a single vision glasses. And so starting from then, I knew there's something about Worth OK or maybe other interventions that, it, that can actually slow down the progression of myopia. And I'm very interested in understanding the mechanism behind the development of the condition, as well as the mechanisms of those interventions that are now being very used while, while, uh, widely globally um, yeah. to slow myopia. You know, it's interesting. One of the things I read about you, or somewhere it was written, that there was a day when doctors didn't believe that myopia was a disease, was a problem, or even was something we should pay attention to. Is it different now? And what was? how is it different today than it was in the past? So let me give you an example to illustrate how much we have evolved in understanding myopia as a combination of some genetic predisposition, but predominantly an environmentally induced problem. When I started 
uh, the myopia control clinic at Berkeley, which is exactly 10 years ago, we have two buildings um, within the school. One side of the building, like the building I was doing my PhD work using animal models, we fully understand that the development of myopia can be induced by um, optical stimulus such as form deprivation or minus lenses, hypropic defocus. On the other side of the building where we train optometric clinicians, they were told that myopia is a pure genetic problem. There's nothing we can do about it other than giving them the full single vision prescription and just see them back every year right. and just keep updating their prescription. So I felt uh, such a huge disconnect between what we have learned from the research environment mm -hmm. versus how our um, future generation optometrists are taught. And that motivates me of um, getting the myopia control clinic started. So you founded and you're still, you are the chief of this UC Berkeley mm -hmm. myopia control clinic. When did that start? Tell us about that. It started August 21st, 2013. So we're reaching into our 10 year anniversary of this clinic. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it, it means a lot to me. So um, at the beginning of this clinic, um, it's hard to convince our clinic admin that this is an area that has a huge potential, both in terms of um, training our students to really understand the updated knowledge about myopia, mm -hmm. but also it carries a lot of um, like uh, public health concerns or uh, significance. And it's so hard for me to convince our clinic admin that I just basically decided to volunteer my Sundays to get this clinics um, going without getting paid. And I did not need any extra staff. So I was checking in, checking out patients myself. Wow. I did not um, want any students to be um, scheduled with the risk of not having a full schedule on their clinic days. So I just started this clinic by myself, but very, very quickly within three to six months, I've had uh, such a full busy schedule that we're doing pretty much like six to eight, eight weeks of advanced booking just oh within three goodness. to six months. Yeah. How did the word get out? Um, initially, we're getting some referrals from our pediatric clinic and some primary care doctors. Luckily, after my almost like a campaign about myopia is a controllable condition, let us evaluate those kids. We started getting some internal referrals, but very quickly yep. word by mouth from the parents, um, um, like actually telling their friends. Their yes, exactly. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. So you kind of answered this question, but what were some of the challenges you had along the way? And obviously we're at your 10 year anniversary. You guys mm -hmm. are so busy now. It's incredible to see how amazing it is and the protocols you've developed. Mm -hmm. All the students you're teaching, they're so blessed. I told Maria, all of you, you should hear this. I told her, I said, some of the students may not know how amazing it is to be able to work with you, but you, you give them four or five years. They're going to be like, thank goodness, Dr. Liu put us through this. And we learned it because they're already leaps and bounds ahead of the rest of us who've been out of school for a long yeah. time. But back to my question, yeah. what are some of the challenges, the biggest challenges you've had along the way? And maybe even some of the surprises. Absolutely. So um, 
Our clinic is running under a very, very tight space consideration, so there was no dedicated space specifically for this specialty. So we had to work under the overall umbrella of the contact lens clinic. We did not have any staff who are trained to handle myopia control patients and parents, the yeah. typical types of questions usually those parents ask. And because this service usually is, um, um, we charge a premium for the service so parents tend to have a lot of questions they would expect a more attentive care and our staff were not very trained on that on top of that uh, we did not have any kind of a clinical guideline of a what to do for specifically for myopia control consultations new fittings and their follow-up visits so we want to make sure we're sending out a very scientifically based but also consistent message yeah. and so we have a lot of documents and a lot of training to develop. And you have. Yes, we did. So we're working on that, you know, for the first uh, several years. And now we have uh, very detailed documentations to help students making sure they yeah. understand for each specific types of appointment, what are some uh, special testing they need to do to maintain the quality of the um, patient data, and also yeah. to allow any detection, early detection of any subtle changes. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. It's incredible. <clears throat> I, I know that one day y'all, everybody's going to hear more about it because the other thing that Dr. Liu does is she does a lot of clinical research, as you heard from her background and all of her uh, studies. So tell us a little bit about that. So you're fitting in research as well mm -hmm. as seeing patients in the clinic. Yeah. Tell us about the research and how mm -hmm. that all fits in. So the clinical research about myopia is definitely very, very um, important. Um, we have had a lot of exciting results from especially multi-centered, um, like randomized clinical trials. The problem with RCTs, <coughs> uh, obviously there are multiple le levels of problems, but the one I see the most concerning is the lack of um, representativeness of the testing trial populations versus real life patients. For example, we're seeing a lot of those very early onset myopes, <coughs> minus four, um, sorry, four year old with a minus one or minus two, or some kids even at age three losing their age appropriate hyperopic buffers. We're also seeing a lot of adult progressive myopes. Those 22-year-old uh, wow. still progressing from A2 to A50 or minus 9 in a year. So for all of these patients that we see very, very commonly in clinic, they're not represented in the clinical trials. Right. So part of my research is focusing on understanding, um, are we actually, for the interventions we're um, applying to the population comparable to what we see in the clinical trials, do they have the same efficacy and the safety profile when we're applying them to the patient population that's outside of what we usually see in the clinical trial demographics? So a question for you that I think everybody needs to hear the answer to. Let's say a clinical trial was done, 
the publication comes out, we see what it says, but how do we then in practice, I mean, I've been out of school for 25 years, what, what should I look at in that publication and the results to know how I'm gonna implement that in my practice? Okay, so I'm gonna say something. If you don't like it, you can cut it out. The first thing I see in the clinical trial publications is actually the funding source. That's um, okay, I, you can say it. <laughs> in general, we know if it's an industry-funded studies, it tends to, um, tends to overestimate the efficacy a little bit. And so I give more um, credit for any third party or independently published studies. For example, if this is an NIH funded study versus a manufacturer sponsored study. But I also look at whether the demographics um, for the children included, recruited for the clinical trial, um, represents the common patient population I see on daily basis. And for example, if this is a trial that's mostly focused on Caucasian children, where I see the baseline rate of progression is only a quarter to a half diopter per year, I immediately know this may not be comparable to the general population I serve, which tends to have an annual rate of progression of at least three quarters to over a diopter. And so whether the um, testing population is comparable, that's a very, very important consideration in terms of the general um, generalizability of the trial outcome. So let's go back a little bit and then say, here we are, you're doing clinical research, you're doing studies, you're coming up with new information. I've seen some of it, mm -hmm. and uh, hopefully I've seen all of it, but I've seen a lot, and I still don't know really what to do next. Walk us through what are the biggest learnings you think in the last 10 years, and I know that's a big question because there's mm -hmm. been a lot, mm -hmm. a lot that we've seen, and how do we apply that? Because you've got two different groups of practice. You've got doctors who say, I'm not doing myopia management. And I would argue that if you're prescribing anything for a myopic patient, you're managing their myopia. Yes. So maybe we go back. Let's start with your life cycle mm -hmm. of myopia. Yeah. I've seen that chart. I love it. Tell people about it. And then let's, after that, talk about what are the biggest learnings in that life cycle of myopia that we've had in the last 10 years? And how do we apply them in our practice? So the biggest thing, and I think the most um, consistent um, evidence we're learning from both animal studies, also from epidemiological studies, is that myopia does not have one single etiology. Congenital myopia and early onset myopia, those um, at age two with a minus 10 diopter refractive error are not the same type of myopia, um, what we call the school or juvenile myopia. So um, typical example would be an age of onset several years after birth, um, usually like anywhere from um, age six to 10 and uh, tend to progress from a very low level, but tend to uh, stay progressive until mid-teens, until after uh, their puberty. And so this type of myopia with our a pretty good consensus is it's a combined result of genetic predisposition, meaning if both parents are myopic, especially if they're highly myopic, the kids tend to have a much higher risk of developing myopia at a much younger age with faster progression and the less responsive to their treatments. But on top of that, the striking results we have learned is that uh, juvenile myopia is a controllable condition. 
by changing how they use their eyes, the visual environment, or with the pharmaceutical agents, we can slow down the course of this development and in turn um, reduce the risk of those bad complications. So when I have had the chance to be able to talk in front of a group of people about myopia, a group of doctors, the story I tell is when I went to optometry school, my dad was my first patient. So he came into the contact lens mm -hmm. clinic. I was so excited because I was going to fit him in RGP lenses. He'd never seen 2020 before, and I just figured he, I could do a better job. So he comes in, and the good news is I did, but what mm -hmm. I always tell the story of is I dilated him, and he had posterior staphylomas, and I cried because I thought, why did somebody not stop this? Because I was naive. I didn't know that at the time no one mm -hmm. knew what to do. And that's where this research is so powerful because nobody ever has to have that looking retina again. Mm -hmm. Don't you agree? Yeah, um, even though we cannot eliminate myopia completely, but from each individual patient's perspective, um, it's always some benefit of intervention. And the earlier the intervention, the better the accumulative outcome. And this is because by the time they started showing a lot of abnormal axial elongation and the thinning, the stretching of the sclera, the choroid, and the retina, um, there are and somewhat limited things we can do. But before yeah. all of these bad complications happen, uh, if we can apply interventions early on, we may actually preserve the health of the retina almost similarly to someone as a non-myope. If you suffer from dry, scratchy, irritated eyes, the problem may actually stem from your eyelids. Cleansing eyelids daily is essential for maintaining healthy eyes, which is why doctors recommend OcuSoft Lid Scrub Allergy Eyelid Cleanser. New OcuSoft Lid Scrub Allergy removes oil, pollen, and other contaminants from your eyelids to effectively reduce redness, irritation, and itching caused by seasonal allergies. These pre-moistened wipes are easy to use, on the go, or at home. Simply wipe and leave on. As the industry standard of care, OcuSoft has a full line of eyelid cleansers for various conditions. Available through eye care professionals, most retail outlets, and Amazon.com. Visit OcuSoft.com for more details.